0: This special election edition of Columbus on the Record is made possible with support from Time Warner Cable, helping inspire young people to build the skills they need to become the problem solvers of tomorrow. More at connectamillionminds.com. And from RLTV, the cable network dedicated to serving the needs of adults 55 and older with information and entertainment that inspires and enhances the perception of aging.
1: More polls, but less clarity in the governor's race. And Zach Space and Bob Gibbs make their cases for Congress.
0: From the Patel studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Kathy Kandisky, statehouse reporter for the Columbus Dispatch. Bill Cohen, statehouse correspondent for Ohio Public Radio, Sam Gresham of Common Cause, Ohio, and Michael Miller, attorney and former Franklin County prosecutor.
1: Zach Space and Bob Gibbs will debate in just a moment, but first, in two weeks, they really won't matter, but right now, they are all we have to go on. Two polls this week, two very different snapshots of the governor's race. First, a Quinnipiac University poll shows John Kasich maintains his 10-point lead over Ted Strickland in the governor's race. But 36 hours later, a CNN Time poll showed that Ted Strickland had a one-point lead. Both surveyed likely voters. Both were taken over the same basic time period, although CNN's was a couple of days later. There was a difference in sample size. Quinnipiac surveyed about 400 more voters than CNN and Time did. Bill Cohen, the beauty of having all these polls with all these different numbers is one of them is bound to be right, come election day.
2: That's true, like a broken clock is bound to be <laughs> right uh, twice a day. Uh, I think this all, you know, who knows? Uh, it all depends on, these, on the definition of likely voters. Mm-hmm. There's no real scientific uh, way to determine who really is gonna vote, so all these various polls have different definitions of likely voters, and, and that's why they're coming out with, with different, uh, different findings. I might mention there was also a third poll around this time, a University of Cincinnati poll, putting Kasich up by eight. So we've got some polls. And, of course, we had polls a few weeks ago. there was a the Quinnipiac poll, put Kasich up by 17. Yep. So these, these polls have been all over the map. Yeah. Has there ever been a
1: year where the polls have been so widespread, even this close to the election? Or is it we just paying more attention to it this year?
3: I think because of the media, we pay more attention to it. But I'm sure in the evolution of polling, I'm sure there was some major bars. And, and things didn't come out the way they thought they were going to come out. I think they've since refined. But if you look at the poll, the one that really interests me was the Fisher Portman poll. And in the back of that poll, that one hasn't changed much. No, mm. but in the, in the back of the poll, there was a, a question of how you felt about the government. And I think that tells you in that poll, forty-eight percent of the uh, uh, independents were really angry, and fifty-two percent of the Republicans were really, really angry. And I think this race is characterized by fear and anger. I think that's how people are responding to the candidates because of their personal needs. I heard a phrase the other day. People are so blinded by their pain that they can't see anything else. I think a lot of people out there now are feeling it economically and personally, and they can't see anything
4: else. I think it's key, you know, to watch what the independents are doing. I think, obviously, the the candidate that wins the independent vote is most likely to succeed. And on that front, these polls have been just as divergent as they are overall. You know, I think one of those polls showed Strickland plus one with independent voters. Another showed Kasich plus 27. With independent voters. So it's really hard to judge.
1: And the independent voters are coming out. According to the early voting uh, released by the Franklin County Board of Elections, independents have voted, 40,000 independents have voted so far early. And roughly Democrats and Republicans are just under 30,000, pretty even. But the independents are coming out. Michael, what does that tell you?
5: Well, these polls are all over the board, as everybody said, and I find it really inexplicable. I've seen different polls, but they've usually been within a few points one way or another. To have one 11 or 12 points, whatever it was, in the course of a day is, and both of them, not individual candidates' polls, but, you know, independent places from uh, CNE to CNN to the other one. Um, But I think the the independents coming out are, are probably not a lot different from the Republicans or the Democrats coming out. Uh, There is a lot, as Sam says, I think, fear and anger and so forth. I think they're going to turn out big. And I've not seen the one Kathy talked about where the independents seem to be favoring the governor by a a percentage. Everything I have seen, and not really limited to the governor's race, just all across the country uh, in every race, regardless of who seems to be there and in what state, the independents are coming out big and almost always favoring the Republicans. And I would just assume that would be the same thing here. I don't know what makes Ohio any different.
1: Strickland Strickland's campaign encouraged? I mean, he's been pretty consistent in the low to mid-40s in a lot of these polls. But in a couple of them, he's crept up to the 48% range. That's getting close to 50. That has to be encouraging for them, and if we believe him, I guess.
4: I, I think I think the candidates themselves, and I think their internal polls are showing this is a much clor- closer race than what we may be seeing in some of these other public polls. Um, but you're right. The governor has not been made it to that 50% point, and I'm not sure that... Kasich has made it there either, the way that they're running their races so competitively at this point.
2: The only poll that we'll be able to say whether it's accurate or not, since all these other polls can be called snapshots in time, Mm -hmm. and, you know, even if they're way off from what the final vote is, the the sponsors of the polls can say, well, that was a snapshot two, two, two months ago. The only poll we'll really be able to judge is probably the one that the Columbus Dispatch usually comes out with, Two or three days before election day on that Sunday, and if that is accurate or inaccurate compared to the final vote, that's one maybe we could judge. All the rest, they're just snapshots in but time. But you know,
4: they do they do help the campaigns create momentum. I mean, when these big Kasich, you know, comes out with 10 point up, showing Kasich 10 points up in a poll, I mean that that helps his his campaign. And as we heard the Strickland people this week complaining loudly about the inaccuracy, I think it was of the of the one Quinnipiac, Quinnipiac poll. Yeah. poll. Um, so it does help the ca- campaigns. You know, as we get up to election day, but you're absolutely right—not until right before. We
1: should mention, as we tape on Friday, there is another poll coming out Sunday morning by the Newspaper Association. So there'd be one more poll that w- perhaps is on your doorstep as you're watching this on Sunday morning. So, but chances are, it's going to be like the other ones, somewhere between 17 and one point, somebody <laughs> winning. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
3: now, let me give you one of those glitches that's going to become very, very important this time, and that's absentee ballots. One of the concerns that Common Cause has had across the state is that not all the absentee ballots are counted. Uh, Some are counted and some are not counted, depending on what the overall race is. I'm going to say November 2nd. It's going to be late in the night before these elections are called, or they're going to be called really early. It won't be somewhere in between. It will be the candidates will win if if the polls are right, or we're going to be there all night before somebody is declared. The Some other numbers that came out today, the
1: unemployment rate crept very slowly yeah. down, but it's still at 10, the magic double-figure number. It's going down, so that's good news for Ted Strickland, but it's not below 10, so that's good news uh, politically for John Kasich. I think it's too late for, the, for all of that stuff, uh, really, Mike. Yeah. Yeah.
5: You know, people who are hurting, and and we all know there are lots and lots of them. It doesn't make any difference whether it's the governor's fault or not. I think politics being what they are, he's going to get blamed for a lot of it. And nothing is going to happen in the next 13 days. Uh, You know, these people aren't going to be employed, not getting their first paycheck. It's just not going to occur. And uh, it's just, I think, a bad time, an unfortunate time. As I say, he's going to lose. I'm not saying that. But it's just an unfortunate time to, to be an incumbent, and you're going to, you're going to uh, get the wrath of a lot of voters, that
2: deserved or not. And these, these latest unemployment numbers have something for both campaigns. Because there were fewer people unemployed and fewer people employed, it sounds contradictory, but it is true, both camps can, uh, can cite those figures.
1: Okay, let's get to our second topic. One of the surprising results of the Quinnipiac poll was that President Obama does not seem to be helping Ted Strickland. could be hurting him, in fact. The poll asked likely voters if the president's campaigning for Ted Strickland made them more or less likely to vote for the governor. Only 9% said Obama's campaigning would make them more likely to vote for Strickland, but 32% said it would make them less likely. 58% said it doesn't matter. So, Sam Gresham, why were there 35,000 people at the OSU Oval last Sunday?
3: (laughs) I think because the Democratic Party pushed real hard to make a good showing. And I think there were a lot of students who wanted to come see the president. But I also think there's some momentum. I think there are some things happening. Uh, The Democrats, And in fact, uh, when you mentioned the 17 percent poll differential, I think that energized the Democratic Party. It scared a lot of people um, about that. So they began to move to do something about it. As the poll numbers draw closer, um, they feel they have a chance but i think uh, mike said it earlier best the incumbent president right now is not a guy that a lot of people like because he has not re- uh, solved the problem of the economy whether he's put some things in place that preserved us from even going further into the hole in the economy that seems to have not resonated with the with the public so uh... he's gonna catch it now between now and two thousand and twelve what happens i don't know But I heard a good friend of mine say earlier, whoever was in office 2011 and afterwards is going to catch the flag because the economy is not going to get any better, uh, whoever's in office.
4: Well, see, I I would argue that the president did help what what the intent was there, which was to get the base excited, get the base excited to go out to vote. He drew 35,000 people in. Those are people that probably already support Ted Strickland. And I think what the president's visit may do is just try and get, make sure those people get to the polls. I think that's kind of where they're at right now, rather than changing minds on who they're going to vote for.
2: Everybody on the podium there, virtually everybody, Glenn Strickland, the president, Michelle Obama, they all said, how many people here have your absentee ballots at home? And some people raised their, how many of you have mailed them back in? Oh, not so many. So you're, you're exactly right. That's what they're trying to do, at least get those, get those base votes. In and counted.
1: Did Ted Strickland and Barack Obama stand together on that stage?
2: I was too far away to see it. I was even better. I, back heard, I everybody. Was that they, they
1: never they never were on the stage stage at the same time. And what does that say that that the, the money shot as they call it in the well, in the it's a, it says shot. what yeah. you just
5: read with that poll that 32 percent are more uh, inclined to, to vote against the governor because of uh, the president campaigning for him, and only nine percent in favor of him. And yet, as I believe I heard this morning. Uh, the president is going to be, uh, or is, uh, touring California uh, for the senator out there and the governor's race and, mm-hmm. and a couple of big things. And and out there, if I heard correctly, he's got like a 55% approval rate, mm-hmm. which, which is really surprising. Not that he has a 55% approval rate, but there's such a difference between, between here. I, I know we're different from California and, <laughs> and isn't everybody, but still, yeah. it's, a, it's a stunning, to me, uh, uh, different in the numbers.
1: The Tea Party... Uh, is planning a rally in Columbus, I think the Sunday or the weekend before Election Day. The the last time they had a rally, Republicans didn't show up. Most of the big-name Republicans didn't show up. They all had scheduling conflicts. Well, they've got two weeks' notice, Mike. Might they be able to find room on their calendar this time? And will John Kasich be at the Tea Party rally, do you think?
5: Well, I, I, I can't answer that question, Mike. Yeah. I suppose he'll be there if he thinks the polls show that it's mm-hmm. beneficial for him to be there. And he will have a scheduling conflict if the polls show it would not be beneficial <laughs> for him to be there. And, and, and he's
2: no different than any other
5: political yeah, Any commercial? other candidate. We That's asked,
2: right. We asked John Kasich about that this week, and he, he reminded us. He was at, a, at an early Tea Party meeting uh, rally in Columbus even before he announced Uh, So he He said, I like the Tea Party. He wasn't shy about saying, I like the Tea Party. now
4: as we get closer and the independent vote Mm -hmm. is what they're all after, you know, the independents are the ones that may have a little bit of uneasiness and moderate Republicans about the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. So you may see them kind of thinking, "Mm, I don't Mm -hmm. know if we're going to be at Tea Party events this close to the election day.
1: Sarah Palin, we don't know if she's coming or not, but... And if she's going to have any hope of running for president in 2012, being in Ohio right before the election has got to help that. So if you were putting money on it, would you say yes or no? She appears. She well, t-
3: to be president of the United States, Ohio is a, s- a critical mm-hmm. state. So if you're going to be a serious candidate for president of the United States, you should mm-hmm. be there. But I think this election is going to be won in the Northeast, and it will, if the Democrats win it, it will be predicated on young people turning out, people of color and persuading some of those independents. Mm-hmm. That's the combination they're looking for.
1: Is that why Al Sharpton's going to hold a rally up in Cleveland this weekend, I believe? Right.
3: They're really trying, to, and the whole northeast corridor, I, I, my business requires me to go up there, they are really working that northeast quarter to get Cuyahoga County going northeast uh, to turn out. Uh, Canton, Youngstown, all those places. But that's
2: time. where you have all the—that's where you have the corruption uh, right. uh, problems <laughs> over there, and a lot of people are saying there's going to be low voter turnout by those Democrats. Well, I
5: there. think there's got to be a lot of long-term Democrats that are just so disappointed in that corruption up there that uh, they're going to stay away too. Uh, so again, again, that's not the governor's fault, but he may—he may get blamed for it. It may cost him votes <laughs> for something
1: that's entirely out out of his hands. Let's get to our last topic. Columbus voters have the chance to change the rules for city council in November. They will decide a charter change that would allow city council to meet privately under certain circumstances. Supporters say it will bring Columbus in line with state open meeting laws. Opponents say it will literally close the doors on important business. And the opponents are upset with claims made by supporters. The group Keep Council Open says this website and some mailers are deceitful. The mailers and the website suggest the measure will make city council more accountable. Kathy Kandiske, you have one of the mailers right there. I do. Is that a hard sell to say closing meetings will make city council more
4: accountable? That's right. Um, You would read this, do you want to hold city council more accountable? And you would say yes. Yes, we do want to hold them more accountable. But you need to understand what you're voting for. And voting yes on this would be giving city council the right to meet behind closed doors in limited situations, litigation, hiring, things like this. So the, the people that are upset with this is think, think that the ads are maybe promoting that they wouldn't be meeting behind closed doors. But in fact, if that's what you want, if you want to keep all meetings open, you need to vote no on this. If you want to give them the right to vote, to meet behind closed doors, you vote yes.
1: Of course, the, of course, before we get to say the ballot language which we're seeing on the ballots now really clears it up. So let's take a look at it. If you look at the ballot language that is appearing on ballots now as folks vote early and that they will see on Election Day, it's a really long paragraph. I won't read it, but nowhere in that paragraph does it say private meetings or secret meetings. It just says it makes city council adhere to state law.
3: That sounds great, Sam. I think this is one of those tongue twisters where we, people get lost in the content of it. And yes means no, and no means yes. And I think when you have a vote like that, people have a tendency to say, I'm confused, so I'm voting what?
4: No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and here's the reason this whole issue I think is so important. Virtually every Democrat on city council is there because 10, 15, or 5 years ago, they were appointed by the other Democrats. Then maybe they won election for the first time, but they got in there because of a, They were appointed, and these are the kind of meetings that they may be having behind closed doors, where they discuss, well, who should we appoint? What kind of deals may be made? And that's why it's important. It,
1: Mike, the, the argument is rather than meet secretly one on one, which council members can do, this brings it all under the umbrella of the state open meeting law. We give notice. We let people know that we're meeting in private. Why we're meeting in private? So we're just like every other body. That's a, that's a decent case to make.
5: It is a decent case. I mean, when, when it looks like almost all the other forms of government we have in the state uh, are able to do that. <laughs> but as I think Kathy was saying earlier, uh, before we started, she she thought, and I'm sure she's right, that it, it dealt with the home rule uh, provisions of, of of Columbus. So I I don't think it's going to make a great deal of difference. I understand what Bill's saying, but, uh, but some of these things are never going to be open anyway. That's so right. Particularly who you're picking and so forth. It's just. I don't think this is a panacea to yeah. opening up I don't government. think
3: it, it, it creates any greater transparency because those decisions were made on a telephone call or a breakfast, lunch, and a dinner, and somebody counted numbers and then they told what the number was.
2: In other words, so, two or three people got together here, right. and two or three people got yes. together there, and that's all legal, right. and then they can make the decision. Right. And yes or no right. on this is probably not going to change that.
6: No, no, it's not. It's not. No. <laughs>
1: All right. On that positive note, the congressional candidates are coming up for uh, their debate, but first we want to get to our off-the-record parting shots, and we'll let Mike Miller go first.
5: Well, I think uh, uh, when the election's over with, I think the Republicans are going to do well, which is no great prediction, but I do think they'll take over the Ohio House, and I think they'll take over the U.S. House.
3: Okay. Sam? I think it's going to be much closer than people believe, and I hope whoever is elected has the insight and fortitude to do what's necessary to make this country better, regardless of who they are.
2: All right. Bill Cohen? I have no prediction because I'm I'm (laughs) speechless. And I'm also thankful that you have not asked us for our take on the NPR, Juan Williams contest. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm afraid I'll get in trouble. <laughs> Maybe I can get a job on a Fox,
1: though. <laughs> Kathy Kandisky. Well,
4: I, I agree with Sam. I think this governor's race and all the races are going to be pretty close this year. But when it comes to the governor's race, whoever wins, I think, is probably going to have the shortest honeymoon period on record because of the budget crisis that the state's facing and that they're going to have to deal with when, after they win.
1: Okay, my off-the-record comment is actually a correction. Last week during my interviews with Mary Jo Kilroy and Steve Stivers, I incorrectly referred to the repeal of the Sarbanes-Oxley legislation as being blamed for the housing crisis. I got my Wall Street regulations mixed up. It was the repeal of portions of the Glass-Steagall Act that some feel is to blame. So I just wanted to set that straight. So now it is time for our election special.
0: And now, live from the Patel studio at WOSU at COSI, the candidates for the 18th Congressional District join host Mike Thompson for this special election edition of Columbus on the Record.
1: And we continue our 3-week series looking at key central Ohio congressional races. This week we are joined by Congressman Zach Space of Dover. He has been the 18th district's representative for 4 years. And challenging him this year is Bob Gibbs, a Republican state senator from Lakeville, Ohio. Let's get right into it. First of all, I want to thank you folks for coming all this way. It's not a not a trip it's a quick trip down the road to come to Columbus from uh, the 18th district, so I appreciate you coming all this way to to introduce yourselves to our regular audience and also inform us about the issues affecting the 18th district. So, uh, Congressman Space, the 18th district has had economic problems for quite some time. I think over the years, even in good times and in bad times, uh, some counties unemployment rates, ra- rates have been in double digits. Uh, but if we take a look at what, is, what it's looked like over the past 10 years, um, this is this is a picture of the graphic of, of a graphic illustration of the unemployment rate in the 18th district. Um, it really had that that sharp tick up is since you took office in 2007. Um, how much responsibility do you bear for that?
7: Well, uh, if you look at the same graphic for virtually every congressional district in the country, you'll see the same phenomenon. Uh, this uh, recession that we're in, and that graph is a reflection of the recession, is a uh, product of uh, years of uh, i think financial mismanagement uh, fiscal irresponsibility and poor policy at the behest of the uh... bush administration and in frankly there it's not just a republican problem i think uh... some democrats are equally to blame in terms of some of the trade policies for example that contributed to this recession to suggest that somehow or another the day that the democrats took the house in two thousand six uh, things began to sour, Is it's laughable. We all know that that's not the case. Uh, what, what, what is important to understand is that in the last eight months, we've seen that trajectory become, begin to come down. We've seen a 23% reduction in the last eight months alone. Um, that, uh, In addition to some other strong signs of recovery, uh, the indication is that the recession is beginning to subside. We're moving in the right direction. Uh, and the, the bleeding has stopped. Now we have a long way to go. Senator Gibbs, what can you do that's different
1: than Congressman Space has done?
6: Well, one thing I will agree with the congressman: uh, it is national. It's, uh, it's of districts across the country because of the policies coming out of Washington, D.C. I think uh, this uh, massive deficit spending that's continuing and has just ex- gone exponentially through the roof in the last four years uh, is 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 creating the problem, making the problem worse. And uh, you know really, this all started in the housing mar- uh, the housing market, and uh, Congress failed to act and, and uh, the, the the regulatory structure in that area it broke down and and, and there was loans made that shouldn 't been made because one hand, the government was encouraging uh, loans through the community Reinvestment act, and the other hand you know saying well okay we 're going to do that because that 's the policy and um, I, you know I think four years the, the they 've been in charge in Congress and, and we 're seeing the result, and we 've seen uh, the deficit go from uh, January 2007 when Nancy Pelosi took over as Speaker and Zach became Congressman, $151 billion, 12 times increase.
1: Explain to me how government spending affects, negatively affects the economy. We hear that all the time. We sort of assume it's fact, but how does growing government spending lead to a poor economy? Well, What are the economics it, there?
6: It's, it's creating a lot of uncertainty, and, and, and the, the deficit spending is, is the ma- a major component of it, and there are several other components.
1: Well, we had deficit spending in the early 90s, in the late 80s and early 90s. And we, then we had an economic boom in the, in the mid to late 90s with huge deficits. There was, was there less uncertainty then? But I
6: think that the, 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 the amount of deficit now compared to the, the relation to the GDP, the gross domestic product, is a, is a lot higher, um, I think about 10 or 11 percent. So, uh, you know, normally it would be 2 or 3 percent of the GDP. And so we're seeing just uh, unsus- a very unsustainable and it's adding uh, massive uh, uh, debt to our uh, trillions of dollars of debt to our, our national debt. And what's it doing the money that comes in, more, more money that comes in is going to have to go to service that debt. And so the public sector, now the government, is actually competing for dollars, and now they're also printing money, so they're devaluing the, the value of the dollar. And, and, and this is uh, on a day of reckoning is going to come if we don't get this turned around.
1: Congressman Space, deficit spending has increased. 35 to 40 percent just in the past couple of years since the president took office. And it increased before that, but it really has ballooned sure. in the past two years. How do you explain that, and, and how can you reverse that?
7: Well, the way we reverse it is to create jobs. And if you look at where we're spending our money, it is in investments in this country. Uh, look at the American Recovery Act, for example. Look at the TARP uh, 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 bill, for example. Uh, TARP was, uh, by the way, a bipartisan uh, uh, decision that's the bank bailout. Yes, the bank bailout uh, at a time when we were perhaps on the cusp of a great depression. It has worked. Uh, we're seeing most of that money, if not all of it, being paid pa- be, being paid back with interest. Uh, the American Recovery Act is investing in tax breaks for the middle class. It's investing in states like Ohio that desperately need help to meet their budgets, and it's investing in infrastructure, highways, roads, bridges, broadband for areas like Ohio's 18th creating jobs, and in the end, that's the way we get to get our budget balanced, putting people back dist-
1: to work. The 18th district has received $354 million because of the stimulus. How many jobs have been created b- for all that money?
7: It's impossible to quantify it uh, today. The question is, uh, is it making a difference? And it is. What, some of this money, for example, Mike, is uh, $66.5 million applied for our Connecting uh, Appalachia Broadband Initiative. What this is going to do is is going to bridge a divide that exists between uh, rural southeastern Ohio and urban and suburban America. It's going to allow us to have our children have the same advantages in school. Our businesses and small businesses have the same advantages that city businesses have. Our health care providers, our teachers, it's going to allow for us to make up huge ground. It's a transformational moment for Appalachian, Ohio. Or shouldn't we be able to say, ballpark figures, how many jobs no, we've I mean, got for $350 million? No, that's, that, th- this was never, uh, no one had ever at any time said that this American Recovery Act was going to create X amount of jobs.
1: We're going to keep the unemployment rate at 8%. That was well, that, one promise early on.
7: Well, that was never a promise I made. Uh, we, we did what we had to to stave off a Great Depression, and we have, it has worked, uh, drive around my district right now, the unemployment rate is, is coming down at an at a, uh, admirable rate. It's not where it needs to be, but it's coming down. People are going back to work. Just uh, two weeks ago, we announced the largest solar field in the country coming to southeastern Ohio in my district. We're bridging that technological divide. We're training the workforce for the jobs of tomorrow. People are beginning to restore hope and, and regain hope in our district for a better tomorrow. We're leading in the energy sector. Senator We're no Gis- longer going to follow. We're going to lead.
1: Three hundred and fifty-four million dollars. Would you have turned that money away? Well, let me. If say, you were a congressman, let me say
6: something about the stimulus. Uh, you know, it's seven hundred eighty-seven billion. It's gone over eight hundred billion, almost a trillion dollars, and only three percent has been spent on infrastructure. Okay, so the rest of it's going. Uh, well,
1: uh, go uh, to health care uh, and teachers. Well, it's going a lot. A lot, of, a lot of
6: it's gone going to bailout states, and in, in Ohio, you know. We've uh, the, the legislature and the governor balanced up the last budget, and now we've prolonged the situation because now we've got an $8 billion hole to fill, which is a lot bigger than we had two years ago. Uh, so I think it's important to remember that, as you said, that had to be passed to keep unemployment going above 8%. Well, unemployment went higher than 8%, obviously. A lot of people don't have jobs. And the result's been, we've lost through June of this year, we've lost 3 million jobs nationally in the private sector, and we've added $3 trillion to the to the debt. And so you know now we got a big massive pile of debt and we don't have and where are the jobs.
1: One uh, In a moment we'll take questions from our audience here at WOSU at COSI and we urge you to join us online we're hosting a live chat and that is at WOSU.org COTR join us online and we'll take questions from the audience in just a minute. Uh, Senator Gibbs, that's a big issue in this campaign in the 18th district related to jobs is trade and trade policy here's a graph which estimates the number of jobs that the 18th district has lost over the past four or five years this is the number of workers deemed eligible for federal assistance because their company has moved the jobs out of the country. As you can see it's a sharp spike since certain, certainly since 2007. How do you convince those folks who lost those jobs that free trade is a good thing?
6: Well, what I am a strong proponent of is fair trade. And, and, but we need trade because trade lifts everybody up but we got to work really hard to make it fair. And there's a couple things going on that, that's not fair and I have, I have Serious concerns about that, but if you really look at the at the numbers, what's what, the reason we've lost jobs to foreign countries is because bad public policy. We have the second highest corporate income tax rate in the world, and we have a very burdensome regulatory structure. And these these, these businesses, it's a global market; they got to compete, and and the, and cost of production, and and uh, so. I would argue that, you know, we've seen the Department of Commerce figures 26 percent of the the manufacturers, uh, employees for high manufacturing are dependent on exports. Agriculture. We saw almost $3 billion of sales last year, about almost a 70% increase from five years ago. So trade can lift everybody up, but it's got to be fair trade. And, and, and this goes back to the deficit the issue with China. China is not playing fair because they don't let their f- currency float to market rates. And, but it's going to be hard to play hardball at China when, when they're a banker.
1: Congressman Space, you've been harshly critical of NAFTA. You said you wanted to repeal NAFTA, but 7.9% of private sector employment in Ohio Is because of foreign trade. And Mm -hmm. half of our exports go to Canada and to Mexico. So we're getting some benefit there. Wouldn't repealing NAFTA hurt that segment of the economy?
7: Of course not. Uh, I don't want to eliminate all trade. I don't want to become protectionist. We have to engage in trade that's fair. And Mr. Gibbs says he's a fair trader. He's not, he's a free trader. Um, you can say what you want. He's testified before Congress about the benefits of the tr- existing trade policies with China. He has uh, advocated on behalf of NAFTA. These trade policies, Bob, have been devastating for this country. Now, that when when you look at uh, our options when it comes to trade, we have two options, essentially. We don't have the option of, of not trading. We have to trade. We can either uh, insist that though our trading partners comply with some basic fundamental Rules when it comes to fair labor standards, things like child labor laws, for God's sakes, uh, or we can roll back uh, these reforms that have been ha- fought for for a for hundred years by men and women in labor uh, in this country. Things like child labor laws, the eight hour workday, the 40 hour work week, uh, environmental integrity, workers' compensation, unemployment compensation, the things that make this country great. Now, Mr. Gibbs's solution to the trade problem is to roll back those progressive reforms, those things that are so important to this country. What's What's up? Let's be
6: to clear. Uh, when he says I testified before Congress, that was in the late '90s when I was President of the Ohio Farm Bureau, testifying to get China into the into the ball game, so get them to play by the rules. That was the whole intent, because they're not playing by the rules, and if they're not in the ball game, they're not going to play by the rules. And and I think it's interesting NAFTA. Canada's our number one trading partner. Mexico second, and now our exports going to China is number three. But you know, the president of the United States, if if um, there's a problem with NAFTA, he can open up the, and renegotiate that agreement anytime he wants. But Congressman Space has sponsored a bill called the Vote Act. He says he doesn't want to be a protectionist. That Vote Act would make it where the Department of Labor has to go out and hold hearings all around the country, and and and, and put it for a referendum of the people. And, and so that's a very protectionist type policy.
1: I want to get to the the corporate income tax argument that a lot of folks who promote free trade say it's not the the trade that's costing jobs, it's the corporate income tax. I took a look at a company in the 18th district, MEBA, which is an auto parts manufacturer in McConnellsville um, in Morgan County. I looked at their financial statements. They're an Austrian company, so it's in euros. 109 million euros was spent in personnel costs last year. Uh, 3.4 million euros spent on income taxes. That company spends 32 times more on personnel than it does in taxes. Even eliminating that corporate tax, how do you, well, how do you compete with it, personnel costs? It,
6: it's not just taxes. Um, there was a recent article in the Wall Street Journal about two weeks ago, and it said that in corporate America, one of every $3 earned goes for taxes and regulatory compliance. And so it's a combination. And when I meet with our our employers out in the district, I just hear, you know, really horror stories of the frustration, because most people are trying to do the right thing, but when they can't get permits and they get all this red tape and bureaucracy and higher cost, and and cap-and-trade is going to increase costs for them, uh, I think the recent health care legislation creates more uncertainty and higher costs.
1: We'll get to health care in a minute, but Congressman's base. Regulation, small businesses complain they have mounds and mounds of paperwork. To, for workers comp and things like that how can we get through that and what, well, what can you do to th- do that? I,
7: I think it's interesting that Mr. Gibbs would use MEBA as an example. MEBA is a shining success it's an example of what can happen when when local government works hard to try to lure manufacturing in I, along with members of the Appalachian Regional Commission, the the Governor's Department of Development, sat down with members of MEBA and worked out a solution to bring their corporate headquarters to Morgan County, Ohio. They are turning a profit. They are making things work. Uh, The answer is not to eliminate workers' compensation or to to make work conditions harsher for the American worker. The the answer to this problem is to insist that those parties that want, our trading parties that want access to... Th- our massive American consumer markets comply with some basic and fundamental labor standards before they have access to those markets. They will comply if we make them. Why we, haven't we made them? We, haven't, we haven't because multinational corporations and, and very, very wealthy people benefit from the existing structure.
1: But isn't there a backlash? If we impose restrictions or rules, then they shut down exports from us and then it hurts our companies and our
7: farmers here. The, the value of labor in this country goes up. People, the income levels go up in this country, we become stronger, our national security becomes stronger. This is a national security interest I- issue when we lose the ability to, to conduct heavy manufacturing as we have over the course of the last 15 years, very steadily, it becomes a national security issue. We can't afford not to do this. I
1: want to take a question from our audience. Go ahead, please. Uh, hi, my name is Russ Goodwin. I'm a retired Chief Petty Officer in the United States Navy, and I just happen to be gay. Do you support the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell? If you do, why? If you don't, why? Thank you.
6: Senator Gibbs. I, know, I think the policy that's had for, I don't know how many years, probably 50 years or longer in the military is working, and we've got a very uh, high-skilled, qualified uh, personnel in the military. We need to support them, and I think that policy has worked fine as far, as far as I know.
1: Even though the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs says it's time that Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the ban on gays in the military is, is should be... Should be dissipated.
6: You know, I, I haven't really delved into it and looked at, you know, thought about that much. But uh, as far as I know, it's you know, it's our military is working fine, and, and uh, it's not broke, don't fix it.
1: Congressman, if it came up for a vote in the House, even in the next few months, would you vote to do away with "Don't Ask, Don't Tell"? It has come up,
7: and I have voted. Uh, look, I, I have delved into it. I have talked to members of the military. I have I have listened to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense. Um, and and what. Look, I, certainly, what the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff says is important to me. But when I talk to somebody that has served in the Marines for years, and he tells me it's not what's a morale issue for him is whether or not the guy standing next to him has his back. If he's gonna if he's gonna have his back under fire, that's what's important. So uh, not whether or not the the sexual preference of the person next to him is the same as his. Uh, so I, re- I, I support. Uh, Uh, Secretary Gates, I support uh, Admiral Mullins uh, in in repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell.
1: Sticking with the military, the military makes up a large portion of the budget. uh, Congressman Space, you've said to reduce the deficit, you've proposed across-the-board cuts of 3% every year Mm -hmm. for three years. Does that include the big three? Social Security, Medicare, and the defense budget?
7: It does include the defense budget. It does include Medicare. I think we can squeeze enough waste, fraud, and abuse out of both but not Social Security.
1: You can get that much waste, fraud, and abuse without cutting services we can or get weapons programs? Or we
7: can get that much waste, fraud, and abuse out of both defense and Medicare.
1: Do you have any particular specific numbers? to it's what you It's across the
7: board. Yeah, there are hundreds of billions of dollars in both uh, departments that are wasted by fraud, waste, or abuse every year. Senator Gibbs, would
1: well, you cut Social Security, Medicare, and the military?
6: No, Social Security is off, off the table. We, we have a, a obligation and uh responsibility to our, to our seniors and 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 uh, people who have paid into the system uh military um, you know i'm sure there's some areas that they can find some waste and and, and duplication that 's fine but i 'm not 'm I'm, I'm not a, a proponent for cutting the military I think we need to to fund our troops and and um, you know that's the number one responsibility of federal government, it's our national defense and national security and um uh, was it Medicare? Medicare
1: was it? is left. That's the biggie. Well,
6: you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, they passed this health care. They, they're taking $500 billion out of, out of Medicare. They're, they're
1: cutting the growth by $500 billion. Yeah, and, they're putting right. more, and
6: they're putting more and they're shifting more pressure onto the states because they're putting more people on the Medicaid program. So um, I think the way we cut the spending is, is we've got to t- start what I call the domestic d- uh, discretionary spending which is not those areas.
1: 12% of the federal budget.
6: Okay, but those, those areas have grown double-digit the last two fiscal years, the domestic discretionary spending. So we ought to roll those back to 08 levels to, to start. And then there's other things we can do. Uh, we need to change the, the, the process, the legislative process, and the budgeting. You know, putting, all, putting everything together in one big bill and, and, and doing an up-and-down vote, we need to break those bills apart and, and prioritize and, and so everybody knows what they're voting on. Uh, baseline spending. We need more contract bidding, for bring the private sector in here, a little competition good thing. Uh, there's always things we can do in the process.
1: As the spending side, where do you stand on the Bush tax cuts? You both want the Bush tax cuts to be extended, correct? Um, um, for all income levels,
7: Congressman Based For one year. For and one uh, year. For recess. Uh, in the middle of a recession is not the time to raise taxes.
6: Uh, I'm, I'm for uh, extending the, the, the tax cuts. Uh, you know, for cut how long? Indefinitely. Uh, I would I would cut, even cut some. Uh, we need to get uh, this economy going, and, and I'm, I'm, I have full confidence the more money we can keep back, taxpayer monies and, and families and, and employers, the entrepreneurs, they're going to invest that money a lot better than the government, just like we saw the stimulus plan, $3 trillion of debt now and no the jobs. Stimul-
7: the, the stimulus bill you referred to, however, one, a full one-third of it was in the form of tax cuts that you're espousing at the same time condemn Not real tax Yeah, it goods. was. Ninety-nine percent of Americans receive tax Yeah, well, I'll give
6: you an example of that. If you want to go out and, and, and put uh, new windows in your house, we'll give you a, they'll give you a $1,500 tax credit. I'd just soon give the tax credit deduction and, and let people use their, use their money what they want to do.
3: Um,
1: you said that the, this economy is the worst time to impose a tax hike. When's a good time?
7: uh... when we are generating revenue uh... and we are not in a situation where where people are struggling
1: but when that happens and government has more money Mm -hmm. the inclination is to cut taxes even further because we have you know in some cases a surplus Sure, isn't that the time to raise taxes when people are better off?
7: Absolutely it is, and we are going to have to show strength and resolve, and I'm not suggesting we we raise taxes for the middle class. I'm talking about the wealthiest Americans. Next year we need to assess whether or not the Bush tax cuts should be extended beyond one year for them. Mike, I'd just like to make a point,
6: you know, you're talking about the wealthiest Americans. I'm I'm not not concerned about the Bill Gates of the world, but where they're talking here at that, that one level, Almost 50% of our small businesses are at, are at that level. Well, and when no I say
7: wealthy Americans, I'm talking about people making over a million dollars a year. Well, that's not, in what that, that's, not what,
6: that's not what's on the table that you guys you not, know, don't, went home with. Don't about. say
7: you guys. It's not me.
6: Well, it's the Democrats
1: and the Congress. Okay, we have a question from the audience. Go ahead, please. Yes, we've
6: heard a lot about jobs tonight. Well, there are literally millions of jobs to be held at the renewable energy sector. Um, Mr. Space and Mr. Gibbs, uh, both of you have taken tens of thousands of dollars in contributions from the coal industry to your political campaigns. My question is, how are we ever going to get the change, um, the job-creating change, in our energy policy we need uh, when
1: both of you, or both of your campaigns, are funded by the coal industry? Well, let uh, Congressman Space take this one.
7: Well, yeah. look, my, my campaign is not funded by the coal industry. Um, uh, my opponents is, but that doesn't matter. I'm, look, I, I support coal because I, along with I, supporting natural gas and biofuel and solar power and wind power and uh, geothermal and just about any other form of energy that you can think of. Um, I, I think developing a comprehensive energy policy is an absolute must. I think leaving our energy policy to the BPs of the world it has been a tragic mistake we have we find ourselves in the midst of two wars now because of it uh... and we we need to develop a policy uh, i think that policy has to include coal as a very important part of it certainly a clean coal as well uh... we're one of the my my crowning successes in the first three and a half years is the announcement two weeks ago of the largest solar field in the country coming to Muskingum county That's, and with it will come six hundred jobs and, and it positions our region to become a leader in, in advanced energy. Uh, we have the. Let's let Senator
1: Gibbs answer this question, and then we'll talk more about sure.
7: climate change. The question
1: was can you take money from the coal industry and then push for? Regulation of the coal industry.
6: Wait, obviously we can. We, you know, I, I'm, I'm strong for the coal industry. I'm strong for the oil and gas industry. What we need in this country is a, a wide, diversified portfolio of energy. Because if we're going to have a vibrant, growing economy at least four, 3 to 4% a year of GDP, we need to have a, a reliable and affordable energy supply. And you know, coal at the wholesale level can produce a kilowatt of electricity for about 3 cents. It's the cheapest form, and, and they're doing it better and better every day, you know, being cleaner and cleaner, and we can't put them under the bus. In the 18th Congressional District, we have thousands of people that are dependent on the coal industry, and, that you know, the cap-and-trade vote that Congress Space supports put, would put a lot of those people out of work and raise the price of electricity in everybody's household here at least $1,400 a year.
1: Uh, Congressman Spacey, in the summer of 2009, you voted for the cap-and-trade, which penalizes companies and utilities which pollute. Uh, It's very unpopular in your district. Do you regret voting for cap-and-trade? No,
7: I don't. Um, The energy bill that I voted for, Mr. Gibbs pulls these numbers out. The $1,400 per year figure uh, has been debunked. Uh, The CBO, which is a fiercely nonpartisan scientific analysis um, that that is not partisan in any way uh, s- has estimated that it will cost the average household less than two hundred dollars per year by the year two thousand twenty. Now I would suggest if we now, do might nothing, the, might
1: the Ohio be higher than by, that. no That's the a- nationwide by area.
7: the year two thousand twenty the average yeah. household United the, States let average, me finish. Though. Okay, but okay. I would suggest okay. that if we do nothing in Ohio, uh, as well as everywhere else that we are the average household utility bill is going to go up a lot more than $200 uh, per year by the year uh, 2020. We have an opportunity, once again, to get engaged in, a, in a, a comprehensive energy policy that will help rid ourselves of this cancerous reliance upon foreign oil that has been so devastating for, to our foreign policy and our economy. We have an opportunity to engage in a process that will create millions of jobs. Sustainable, long-lasting jobs, and we have an opportunity to preserve and enhance coal. Mr. Gibbs uh, doesn't tell you that the bill that I voted for uh, saves coal. It spends 150 billion dollars in in research and develop incentives for for utilization of coal. Is there such a
1: thing as clean coal? I mean, it's a it's a fossil fuel. You have to burn it. I mean, they've done all this research pumping it into the ground and filtering it, no one's come up with it yet. Is that possible? Do you really believe there's a possible something called clean coal? I do.
7: I think that, look, we have to drive the technology. If we don't drive the technology, there won't be. That's what this legislation is designed to do. It's designed to, to drive the technology on clean coal, to drive the technology on advanced battery components, to drive the technology on wind and solar power, to make, to make this country truly energy secure and energy independent.
1: Senator, Senator Gibbs, you, you voted for a Senate bill mm-hmm, that, that mandates that 12% of Ohio's energy come from renewable sources. And yeah, we
6: did put a 3% cap in there. There is a the 3% cap, but couldn't cap.
1: you argue that... Even, even at three percent, is it, is an energy tax?
6: I don't believe so. I think that it's going to help drive some of that technology. Um, it, I think it's just you know, amazing. Congressman Space says that the, the, the cap-and-trade is good for the coal industry, and you know, we already already determined the coal industry is supporting me because of the cap-and-trade vote. There's just no other way around that.
1: So you mentioned that the, the low cost of producing electricity from coal. The downside is Ohio is the fourth largest emitter of carbon dioxide. If not cap-and-trade, how do you get that down?
6: Well, if, if you really believe that uh, climate change is happening because man man's causing it, then I guess that's a concern.
1: So how, do you, how would you propose
6: fixing it? Well, I don't, I don't think the science has got to the point that, that, that man is, is causing the climate change. I'm not, I'm not buying into it. I, I think it's unbelievable that the uh, uh, EPA uh, is, is, is going to regulate CO2, carbon dioxide under the Clean Air Act, which was never intended to do that. We needed to have more science on that and more debate before 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 we take action in this country that's going to put thousands of people out of work and shift more jobs to China and india
1: let's get to a question from a member of our audience. Go ahead, please
0: This is basically two questions in relationship to education
1: just just one do please? you
0: support no child left behind, and do you feel education should be a federal responsibility that all states should be required to teach the same curriculum senator
6: i I think that uh Education should be at the local level and the state level as much as possible. Uh, you know, if tax dollars that come back, i like to see it just block grants and, and let the uh, states and the local people make those right decisions in the curriculum. And, and if, they don't, if they fail to make their achievements, then, you know, we're going to fire those people, and, and the states should do this and, and start over. But I'm for a uh, uh, little competition in schools. That's why I support vouchers in, in charter schools.
7: Congressman Space. I, I think the, there is a component of federal responsibility. Uh, we are unfortunately falling behind much of the developing world right now when it comes to producing engineers, uh, mathematicians, scientists, and we have to do something uh, to bridge that divide. Uh, and that's where the federal government comes at, establishing standards, uh, providing for some sense of accountability. And I think that No Child Left Behind had that as, as its original goal. So I think it was well intended. Uh, but it hasn 't worked uh, because it 's created unworkable models it 's stifles creativity it has uh, failed to to chart individual child development it has punished schools that need the most help it has rewarded those that uh, that that don 't need the help. And in particular, it's really punished rural poor schools and hasn't helped them the the way it should have. So we need to revise No Child Left Behind so that public education uh, will be given a, a, a fighting chance to give these kids the quality education. They need to survive. and to thrive, and that our country needs to thrive.
1: Back to health care. Congressman Space, you voted for the House health care bill that included the public option, but then you voted against the final bill, the one that was changed in the Senate, if you recall all that that went on then. One of the reasons why you voted against it was because it had the so-called Cadillac health Mm. plan tax. If there is a vote to repeal all or part of the health care bill, would you support it?
7: Um, no. I mean, look, if there's a vote to repeal part of it, it depends on what uh, it looks part? like. Well, I mean, that's a, it's a very comprehensive bill, and it's impossible impo- to go through that in in, in a few minutes. But Did I can tell one? you if it's... No, because there is no one provision. that the, the, There are a number of changes that be, need to be made. I can't answer the question, if there is a vote to repeal the bill generally, mm-hmm. I would vote no. Um, the bill uh, does not adequately control costs. The bill does not equitably pay for itself uh, by imposing a tax on the middle class to pay for health care for the working poor. The bill I I voted for in November uh, included a a tax on the wealthiest Americans who should be paying their fair share for those who are the working poor. Uh, But there are some good things in the bill um, that I, I think we should try to keep in place. That's why I would not vote to repeal it. Uh, I would vote to make it better. So things like pre-existing conditions coverage, li- elimination of lifetime caps, uh, keeping children insured until their 26th birthday on a parent's policy. Those are good things.
6: Senator Gibbs, would you repeal part or all of it? I would repeal all of it and start over. Uh, what they passed is going to bankrupt the country. And it's going to f- provide lower quality services. And he's right about one thing, it didn't address costs. And that's what the number one thing we have to do is address the cost and when we address the cost, because there's escalating costs, nobody can afford it. And we need to, when we do that, we need to incorporate free market, private sector principles as much as possible. And defensive medicine, uh, portability, low competition in the health insurance market would be good. Health savings accounts ought to be utilized to, to drive down administration costs at the doctor's office. Um, I'd like to see encourage states to be the, the laboratories to, to deal with the, medical, un, the medically uninsurable people group risk pools and get them into the private insurance market with some subsidization because we're, we're paying for it anyways when they end up in the emergency room. So if, if we can do some of those things and, and address the cost, that's what we need to do and not put not hire 16,500 new IRS agents to enforce whatever they're going to enforce on, on there people.
1: Lo- there are a lot of popular parts of that bill. The Congressman stay, Space mentioned them. Uh, no more denial of pre-existing uh, conditions, uh, no lifetime caps anymore. If you do away with all of the bill, there's a chance that those might not come back. Well, the problem
6: is with some of those, and, and, and those sound good, but the problem is to make the, for insurance to work. You, you don't you don't go buy f- uh, fire insurance in your house after your house burns down. So what that's going to do? But it is,
1: mandates you buy insurance up front. The bill does. That's right, but the but law but does.
6: if but if you don't have some, if they if they can't actually, you know. Go out for it and actually make it actuary sound. They're not going to be able to write the insurance. And I think I've heard so there's a couple, one or two carriers that on the uh, on the childhood they're not they just quit dropping all the, all child now all children. Uh, so there's some unintended consequences there. So, but that's why we need to address the escalating cost and and go that route.
1: When I get to Social Security, we touched on it briefly when we were talking about the budget. Most economists say you have to do one of two things, maybe both things, or a combination of them cut benefits, raise the retirement age, or increase the withholding uh, of the Social Security payroll tax to keep the fund solvent. Congressman Space, would you support either of those? Well, three things, I guess? Well,
7: I guess no, no, and maybe down the road it depends Which with regards the uh, to uh, the withholdings. Okay. Uh, and not increasing with the existing withholdings, but applying to, to greater income. I, I think that... Uh, uh, there's a, myth, a popular myth circulating right now that so- Social Security is in dire trouble, that, that it's at risk of of imminent insolv- insolvency. We have decades before that that crisis uh, will be here. Twenty forty. Yeah, and we need to start thinking about it now. But the truth is, the best way to deal with this this problem is to put people to work. When we put people to work, revenues an increase. And, and c- should we create the kind of economy that? That, that promotes long-lasting, sustainable jobs, this Social Security issue will, will resolve itself. Um, I think raising the retirement age is, is a huge mistake. Privatizing Social Security would be an even greater mistake. Uh, means-testing Social Security would be a mistake beyond what what's already done. Um, and and I know Mr. Gibbs will tell you that he wants to preserve Social Security and protect it, but the truth is, we have a few minutes left. So that's I want to not get where him. he stood just a couple, a couple months, his, his uh, months ago.
6: His take uh, he, he, he misinterprets a lot of things or puts in well, his that's own what you things. what said. <laughs> now, we already know the Election Commission already ruled about how you recklessly okay, d- d- well, disregard right. for the truth. Uh, no, I don't support doing any of those three things at this time. Uh, what we got to do is get people back to work, and the more people are paying into it now this year, we're seeing uh, in the red because of ca- in the cash flow, negative cash flow, because we got so many people out of work. And this goes back again to the deficit spending and these policies are creating all this uncertainty, and employers are sitting on their hands and they're not investing in their businesses and hiring people. But
1: you had said at one point, raise the retirement age. You would consider no, 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 no. supporting a bill that would raise it to. I, never, I
6: never said that. What I said, John Boehner and, and with his Democrat colleagues, a whole bunch of them came out and said we may have to look at that. And all I said was John Boehner was showing leadership to have a. He once he said his exact words was, "We have to have a discussion with the American people." No. And that's and that's what he said. And maybe he did say retire retirement age. He I did say. I didn't support it. I didn't say I did support I said and he's showing leadership. At least bring it out on the table and have discussion. That didn't, so, didn't say what I was going to do. I'll
1: we'll have to leave it there. That is Columbus on the record for this week. My thanks to the candidates, to our audience, and to our partner, the Columbus Metropolitan Club. Next week we do it one more time, not with these candidates, but uh, Columbus on the Record special election special with candidates from the 12th district. That's Republican Pat T. Berry, the incumbent, and his Democratic challenger Paula Brooks. And we urge you to check us out on Twitter and Facebook and at our website WOSU.org. I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, it was very good, I think.
0: edition of Columbus on the Record is made possible with support from Time Warner Cable, helping inspire young people to build the skills they need to become the problem solvers of tomorrow. More at connectamillionminds.com. And from RLTV, the cable network dedicated to serving the needs of adults 55 and older with information and entertainment that inspires and enhances the perception of aging.